Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, I'm running a little behind a Sunday evening. Um, this is, in other words, the nine days, and, uh, actually I have, there's a grand total of one sponsor this week, that's what I'm doing today, as I'll say in a second, if I'm able, if we're able to get people to step forward, I'm going to try, if possible, to do an extra one this week, which is for Tisha B'Av, uh, about Tisha B'Av, but, uh, if not, well, we'll see, you know, one, one, one step at a time, uh, <clears throat> so notice if things work out, I'll try to do today, and the and the Parsha and the Haftorah, which I guess would be uh, Shabbos Chazon, and then the Tefillah, of course, and then if it works out, then I'll do Tisha uh, If not, it's okay. Um, <clears throat> today's uh, podcast tonight is being sponsored by uh, Dr. Mars Freeman. Very interestingly, now somebody, a very nice person who passed away Oh, this past uh, uh, Pesach, I guess, uh, in Baltimore, Mr. Henry Ratches. And uh, he certainly made an impact on people. I want to read you the Nusuch that Dr. Freeman sent me. He says, for those of you from the Baltimore area, this goes back to Randallstown. And this is what he wrote. This is an honor, quote, an honor Mr. Henry Ratches. There are no accurate words to describe the depth of love, gratitude, and emotion my brother's mother and I felt towards Henry Wretches. Well, he was an elegant, humble man, a cool guy in our young eyes. Our father, Ovashom, felt him as a best friend. He was such a positive, good influence on us in our youth in Randallstown. Always with simcha and encouraging words, we could never imagine that his own childhood was partially spent in a hole dug under a farmhouse in the Holocaust in Poland, hidden saving his family during the war. He was like a second father to us, and leaves us all with a Shem Tov, everyone loved Henry. Unquote. <laughs> I don't usually get that. It says, uh, that's a, uh, uh, an eloquent but an accurate tribute all at the same time. So I hope that his memory will shine. As, well, his memory obviously shines. Look at how Mars is treating him. And then the Shem will have an Aliyah. <laughs> I, um, last week I did um, Montefiore because this came to me. <laughs> See, when I was finishing that, it came by my sense as a millionaire weekend, so I'm going to do Rothschild today, um, once I'm dealing with Balabatim. Uh, so as I said before, if I have time later on for Tisha B'Av, that'll be something <coughs> separate. Uh, I'm not talking about Rothschild's Stamazai, because Rothschild has a big family. I'm talking about the most important or famous of them, Jewishly. Last week I was talking about Montefiore. I was interested in Montefiore as far as Jewish. As I said before... And we'll doubtless say again, we've got lots of millionaires and billionaires and all that sort of thing in Jewish history, especially nowadays. There's a ton of, of rich people, last couple hundred years. Unfortunately, 99% of them don't have no time for anything Jewish, as they say in Alabama, right? <clears throat> you know, they spend everything on, on something else. Uh, if anything, if they give a little bit for something Jewish, it's a big deal, which is a shame. Because as I've said many times, and I think I said last week, 
there's enough money out there that if, if somebody was serious and put it together the funds, all the day schools would be free. Imagine what a liberation that would be in our economy if you go for the day school for free, uh, boys and girls. And it's possible. It's not impossible. It's just not going to happen, <laughs> right? So um, Montefiore was the exception in this regard. The Rothschilds, not so much an exception, except when they were. So the, there's a bunch of Rothschilds. The great majority of them made an unbelievable amount of money in the 19th century by the standards in the 19th century, right? Based on what money was at that time, they were zillionaires. Uh, I mean, so the amount of money was crazy. Obviously, through investments and through, um, what do you call it, government loans. <laughs> you know what I mean? When, you, when, you, when you're floating loans for a million dollars, you know, and if you take 1%, 2%, I mean, I'm not in the business, but a small piece of a giant loaf, you know, you walk away with a lot of money. And uh, I'm not going to give a whole history of the banking house of the Rothschilds. There's a very good book by Neil Ferguson, if you happen to be interested in the financial side of that sort of thing. It's interesting for those who are interested in that sort of thing. <clears throat> I don't care about that. I'm interested in the Jewish side. And most of Rothschilds, uh, like I said before, gave a little bit for Jewish causes. Uh, I'll say one good thing. They were Orthodox, so I don't say that they're Shomer Shabbos really, but formally they were, and they rejected Reform Judaism. <clears throat> so that was just interesting in the 19th century, because the Reform movement, <clears throat> when it rose, and the conservative wanted to say, oh, we're the modern ones. Where this one's, we represent the successful ones, and um, not the old money. <laughs> the old money said this is too new or rich. Said he rejected reform on a whole bunch of reasons, one of which was it was new or rich. And number two, they didn't need to get ahead in life because they were already Rothschilds. They could get ahead. In simple terms, in the 19th century, which is when they flourished, <clears throat> governments obviously need money. Uh, the Rothschilds were not the opposite of revolutionaries. They're extremely conservative because bankers like law and order and calm above anything else. That means you end up supporting right-wing regimes. In the 19th century, these are called kingdoms, right? What we call today right-wing regimes. They had crowned heads of Europe. And so it's weird that the Rothschilds, among others, uh, helped keep afloat very anti-Semitic governments like the Pope, Austria for a while, Russia, things like that. It's weird, but that's what they did. And uh, in that, they were simply continuing the old tradition of the court Jews of Hofjuda back in earlier centuries, when, you know, to supply a king with some money, even though the king might be a bad guy, was considered something, you know, that uh, the Jews could get in, involved in, uh, and it could make them leapfrog all the barriers. <clears throat> and so by the time it's over, the Rothschilds, you know, were able to attain high status because of their money. Plain and simple. In, in different countries, it was different. But uh, let's say, for example, in England, you know, in France, they did quite well. Now, I'm interested in Edmund Rothschild because he got involved with Israel. That's what I want to talk about today. After all, it's the nine days. It's a Tisha B'Av. I was talking about Montefiore last week. <clears throat> and Rothschild was a we total weirdo, but in a very interesting and charming way, in my opinion. Uh in my opinion. <clears throat> Basically, we're looking at Eretz Yisrael in the 19th century. Uh, that's the first time when Jews in anything more than tiny numbers <clears throat> started to move. There had been hardly nobody there like in the 1400s, but then the Spino showed up, and little by little, small dribs and drabs over the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. It's a whole long story. 
Now's not the time to go into it. Suffice it to say, <clears throat> when we get to the 1800s, it became easier to move to Israel. You have the steamships, the railroads, and all that sort of thing. And uh, as the century went by, and people did. <clears throat> now, not enough, but people did. Problem is, you go to Palestine in the 1800s, was under the Turks. How do you make a living? I said once about the Lehman brothers, they were in principle opposed to people making a living. They should only learn. <clears throat> that was one policy of one group of philanthropists. Uh, the Montefiore type said, no, it should help make a Parnassa. I didn't say it should be Chal Shabbos. They should be Shama Shabbos and make a Parnassa. What's, what's the problem with that? What's wrong with making a Parnassa, right? <clears throat> I mean, learning's also good. And they supported that too. But what's wrong with making a Parnassa? Uh, so Rothschild... How should I put it? But this was thinking in in uh, penny ante terms. Take a guy <clears throat> like Montefiore, who was the best of them. Montefiore said, guy needs a windmill, I'll help make a windmill, start a guy over here. Then there's a little community to teach girls to sew. Then there's another guy who wants to buy a farm in the Galilee, I'll help him out. You know, no, there's individual discrete products, projects. But nobody had a broad vision. I guess these guys were the foundation of broad vision. <clears throat> By the time you get to after the Civil American Civil War in the 1870s, 80s, and afterwards, for a whole bunch of reasons, you start to get Jews who say, you know, maybe we should move to, settle in Palestine as Jews and start Jewish settlements of some sort or another. I repeat, Jewish settlements of some <clears throat> sort or another. They had no experience in this. They had no experience in settling colonization. As you know, they didn't know how to be farmers. <clears throat> right? The Arab population wasn't that big, but it was much bigger than the Jews, obviously. A million times bigger. So, uh, this is the world we're talking about. Now, the bottom line is, we're dealing with Eretz Yisrael. We're dealing with the Jewish people having a foothold in Eretz Yisrael. But you couldn't get the rich Jews of the world to give a darn. <clears throat> That's the bottom line. Rothschild was, I mean, uh, Montefiore was the exception. And he did what I would say, not penny any stuff, but singles and fives. He didn't do hundreds and thousand dollar bills, let alone more. Okay? That's <clears throat> what it was. Now, there was a velt of very rich Jews, and they could have done, you know, unbelievable amount. <clears throat> but it didn't happen. It just didn't happen. Now, the exception was one of the Rothschilds from Paris. Originally, the, the original Rothschild was in Frankfurt, Yeki. <coughs> and then, again, I think five sons, if I remember correctly, and each one moved to a different city, different center of Europe, and they were to cooperate with each other. They formed like a network, a syndicate, like we say today, a network. So one Rothschild was in Vienna, one was in uh, Paris, one was in London, one for a while was in, um, and the guy in Frankfurt, of course, so that would be four, and then one was in Italy, in Naples, and maybe move somewhere else later on. <clears throat> so, you know, they, they uh, cooperated on their business ventures, which gave them a lot of power. Okay? Now, <clears throat> I'm going to concentrate on the one in France. The one of their first five brothers was James Rothschild. Okay? James. Uh, he was a weird guy. He was a financial genius. He lived the life of a playboy in a palace. But consider himself a firm Jew. <clears throat> uh... At least let's put it this way. When his relatives came to visit him, he cautioned the palace. There's a famous scene, somebody, Heinrich Heiner, somebody writes that his maid is, is uh, taking all the dishes to tuvel them in the river, you know, in the same river. All right? 
that's who, who he was. And he was very important in French politics. <clears throat> so these guys want to be both Jewish and they want to be French. Want to be 100% Jewish, 100% French. I'm not sure it's possible. In fact, it's not. But they, they make, they make the, the argument that it is. And a guy like that was more French than he was Jewish, I would say. I'm sorry to say. <clears throat> he had a son, Edmund. He had several sons. but you know, And most of them did nothing. They managed the bank's, the bank's business. They had managers for that. They indulged in this uh, project. They were, you know, listen, you're all, you can do whatever you want. It's like uh, it's like Kohelis. You know, I tried everything. <laughs> you know, why the heck not? You want to go into architecture? Be an architect. You want to collect a zoo? Collect a zoo. You want to, you know, go around the world in a yacht? You can do, do whatever you want. Okay? <clears throat> it never occurred to any of these people since the Rabbanishal must put me in a situation where my wealth is unlimited. Let me do something for Claudius Yisrael. At least I will go down famous in history. They didn't think like that. Because the rich people, the Jewish people doesn't exist. The Jewish people is a loser project. You understand? Everybody knows the Jews are a bunch of schnars. And you don't want to get involved in any of these, uh, you know, um, what's the right word, fundraisers and that kind of thing. Because they'll, they'll never stop. You understand? And they'll milk you for all they can. They'll try to <clears throat> screw, you as much money, screw you out as much money as they possibly can. All the Rothschild were brought up with this. <clears throat> and I'll say this much. Schnorrs they gave money to. So it was legendary that in Paris and London, Vienna and all the rest of it, there always were a ton of schnorrs every day, every single day, coming to Rothschild Palace. And each guy got a little nadola. You know what I mean? A little nadola. Uh, so they didn't turn anybody away. <clears throat> the other more assimilated millionaires would say, we're not even Jewish, get out of here and all the rest of it. So at least they gave him the time of day. You understand? For what good it is. So you won't starve to death if you were poor in Paris. You know, you'll get a bowl of soup somewhere, you know, in Rothschild's palace. Like that. <clears throat> they treat it like dirt, but at least to be treated like dirt is also something. Okay? <clears throat> and they know the Jews are... I can tell you there's an entire genre of Jewish jokes from the 19th century all revolving around schnars at Rothschild's palace. It's like, I grew up with a hundred of them. <clears throat> you know, a hundred of them. <laughs> Here's one. A guy goes to Rothschild all the time. And it doesn't matter which Rothschild. Get it, it's a joke. And to the palace. And he comes Friday night. And, you know, gives him a meal. And after a while, and he knew, Rothschild knew, he saw the guy. And then all of a sudden, he starts showing with a younger guy. Always tagging along with him. Once, twice, three times. Finally, Rothschild said, who's this young guy? He says, my new son-in-law, I, prob I promised him three years support. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's the joke. Okay? Uh, or my father said, I guess, the guy goes over to Rothschild, Gemara. What does that mean? Good morning, Rebanchel. Good morning, Rebanchel. You know, Anshel brought the first Rothschild. Uh, then he said, good morning. They said, Gemara. What does he mean, good morning? Then he says, uh, get most, Rebanchel. Give, give me some money. And then, uh, Gemara, get Merevash, give me more. You know, all those kind of things, okay? So, Shalom Aleichem has that whole soliloquy. If I were Rothschild, I'd do this. That's what Fiddler on the Roof, um, which they Americanized it, if I were a rich man. <clears throat> this is the world we're talking about. So, obviously, these Rothschilds themselves are going to have contempt for the Schnorrs and the poor and the Jewish people in general. And yet, at the same time, they did have... A Jewish pride. I don't know where they stuck it, 
But they did have a Jewish pride, you know? They didn't want to say we come from a, a race of, of nothings. They want to say we come from a race of somebody chashu, even though we're not chashu now. And so they had like a cognitive dissonance. <clears throat> and they supported synagogues, central institutions, things of that nature. But Eretz Yisrael not. Now, um, the son of James, one of them was Edmund, okay, Binyamin. And, uh, and he grew up, you know, what kind of education does a guy like this have? A first-class secular education. You know, you don't go to school, you have the tutors come to you, right? Uh, so he went to, you know, with a first-class education. I don't know if he went to college or not. He could get all the professors come to him, you know, if he wanted to. Uh, and he, you know, and he's in a palace, of one of many palaces. I mean, they lived unbelievably well in the 19th century. And they controlled a significant part of the French fiscal economy. I won't go into that. You know, they, they were behind the, tra the trains and all kinds of stuff. Okay, now, um, now I'm going to tell you something funny. Or, now I'll save it till a little bit later. What happened was that he born 1843. So, you know, uh, for the first 40 years or so, he was interested in, you know, let me put it this way. He was interested in roses, in grapes, in wine, in architecture, in Judaism. <laughs> you get it? It's on the list. Uh, it's not definitely not number one. Hey, but it's on the list. Get it? Most people, it's not, Judaism is not even on the list. It's in his top 10, his top 20. Does his epic. I'm sorry to say, for Rothschild, that was something. There was one, Rothschild in Germany was an exception. Get to that later, if I remember. But all the other Rothschild were like this. Okay? At least Judaism was on the list. And he cooperated with the uh, chief rabbi of France, you know, in, in, in what we would call today conservative Judaism. You know, that's not really going to go anywhere, but okay, whatever. <clears throat> then, when he's uh, in his late 30s, around 40, uh, started the pogroms in Russia in 1881, 1882, really. <clears throat> I did a series on this, if you're interested, on the YouTube. <laughs> And um, all I can tell you without spending a lot of time is these pogroms in Russia were a wake-up call for the East European Jews, the non-from particularly, who had sold themselves a liberal uh, self-delusion that one day they're going to be accepted into Russia. The same way that you find Americans who are now, American Jews who are supporting BDS and all the other anti-Israel things, they're selling themselves a self-delusion that, you know, the, the guy will like them, Right? If you only say you're against Israel, the guy will like you. The anti-Semites won't go after you on when when it comes that day. They're they're crazy, but it's a Jewish sickness. What can I tell you? It goes back to Moraglam. So in Russia, if you know the story of the Haskalah and all that stuff, there'll been a real feeling among the Jews that we're going to really integrate into Russia and all the rest of it. And then it turns out that there was pogroms everywhere. The government applauded the pogroms. The Hamon Am applauded the pogroms. Even the intellectuals wouldn't say so publicly, but secretly they applauded the pogroms. It was like a shock and a wake-up call. <clears throat> At that time, you had a bunch of people who were victims of the violence of the pogroms. And some of them fled Russia. But where did he go? So some eventually, as we know, started going to America and places like that. That was the beginning of the rise of millions coming to America. But some wanted to go to Israel, Palestine. This uh, is Bilu. Now, Rabbi Shmuel Moliver, who I did speak about a long time ago, was an important rub in Russia, but nevertheless a Yiddish-speaking guy from the old school, 
I mean, he was very distinguished. He was Rabbi Bialystok. He was not a, a schlepper. But nevertheless, he looked like one. Okay? So he went to Paris. And he had a famous interview with Baron Edmund Rothschild. I don't know how he got to see him. I think he got to see him because he knew he was a rabbi of a city. <clears throat> and the bottom line is, he hit on him. And he said, I, you know, famously, he said, I didn't come for an adoba. I came to win your heart. Right? Which is a smart way for a fundraiser to be. I wanna, and by the way, the good fundraisers do exactly this. I'm not looking for a sum of money. I'm looking to tell you about my cause. And if I win you for my cause, <clears throat> then I got you. Uh, Rothschild was very skeptical. He said, you know, I know you're all a bunch of schnorrers. I'm not saying you are, because you're clearly not. You know, he carried himself with dignity. And, all, and if you know who Shmuel Mulliver was, he did not accept money for trips. And, you know, he, he was the kind of rabbi who turned money down. Not too many of those. And, uh, but... On the other hand, he wasn't crazy over the idea of supporting these refugees. Well, they talked to him, and he said, study the possibilities, and maybe we can take the Jews out of Eastern Europe, or at least some of them, and settle them in Palestine. After all, you don't want them coming all to France. That'll make anti-Semitism. It's not even a great idea if they go to other European countries or America. Wherever the Jews go in large numbers, they'll make anti-Semitism. If they go to Palestine, <clears throat> as a natural Jewish place. He, something like that. You know, he, I don't know, I wasn't there. He used the word something like that. <clears throat> and Rothschild spoke very harshly to him. And he says, if this is a trick, if this is a shtick, if this is a schnar operation, if you're trying to hook me, uh, and l l let's be honest, how can you talk to Rothschild about, mo about money without trying to hook him, <laughs> right? It's not possible. But he said, if you're trying to do this, then I'll come down on you, and I'll close this down, and you'll be sorry you ever spoke to me, and blah, blah, blah. But Rashmul Mulliver was a smart guy and he persisted. And as I say, he was very dignified. And the cause was not his. He didn't make any money on it, the rabbi. He wouldn't get anything out of it. It's very Israel. And so he gave him the bug. Right? Now what's funny to me is Rothschild, as a Frenchman and as non-Orthodox and this and that and the other, you know, he'd be the, he would he would hate himself for being a friar, a uh, a sucker, right? To be taken in by some Jewish fundraising shtick. But that's what happened. And he agreed to pay, not a lot, pay for this first group of pioneers that went there. I don't remember what happened to them. You know, this is the Beloui. Most of them end up dying from malaria and junk like that. And the original settlement didn't work. But, and, and, but listen to this. He said like this. All right, the first settlement didn't work. We'll try another one. I'm sure that won't be good either. Those losers, those idiots, those ne'er-do-wells, those schnars. <clears throat> but I'll write him a check. And when that didn't work, he did another time. He says, those fools, nobody should even give him a penny. The whole thing's a big bluff. It's a bad idea. But he wrote him a check. He get it? For next 50 years, from 1882 till he died in 1934, I believe, he was always butching about it. That's a nice word. And always complaining about it. But he's always writing a check. Okay, and he's the only Rothschild that did that. The others thought he's crazy. Actually, they said like this: all the Rothschilds are eccentric. This one's into zebras. I, I'm serious. This is into zoology. This is into you know submarines. This guy likes uh, wine. So Edmund Rothschild has several hobbies. One of his hobbies is Palestine. It's one of his Michigasen. You understand? Now, to a certain degree, it's true. Why? Why? Okay. Now, I'll say two things. One answer is simple. The other one is mystical, in my opinion. 
And I think it's very, very interesting. First of all, his wife was from. What do I mean? I told you before that of all the Rothschilds, even though formerly they were all Orthodox, and that's important, let me put it this way. They all fasted on Yom Kippur. Okay? And they all sort of kept Shabbat, sort of. Some more, some less. You know, that, that's how it went. That is true. <coughs> Which was something in an age of Reformed Judaism. They didn't advocate changing the prayer book and all the other stuff that you had in the thing. Although in France, they were the most left-wing of all the Rothschilds. I mean, in France, they sort of did back a kind of cer a certain type of reform, but I won't go into that. <coughs> now, um, I told you before, one of them is in Naples. Carl, I think. Oh, no, I forget. That's Carl's the son. Doesn't matter. One of the original Rothschilds was in Naples in Italy. Used to be no Jews were allowed in Naples. But, you know, Rothschild for money for bank, they let him in. That guy wasn't super from either. Not at all. His son, the son of Naples, nobody knows how, just on his own, became very from Wilhelm Karl, right? Nobody knows why. At least I don't know why. Let's put it that way. <clears throat> Maybe to make a bubble noises. He was from, at a young age, he wanted to wear scissors and sometimes didn't wear them out. Out with scissors out in Naples. So there's something, you know, it's hard to figure out what happened. Maybe, I mean, I can only surmise that he had some kind of a tutor and the guy was too good, you know. He turned him on the Yiddish guy. But I don't know. Eventually, this Wilhelm Karl, uh, Moved back to Frankfurt because the old man, one of the five brothers, died without children. And so he took over the Frankfurt branch. And that's where he was till he died in the late 1800s. <clears throat> this guy was a Hirschian. As a matter of fact, he was the president of Hirsch's synagogue. Sam Stranville Hirsch had whatever Aslach he had because the president of his shul was Rothschild. And therefore, anytime there's a question about money, they could solve it. You can read the Mordecai Breuer book. Uh, which I've referred to many times, a wonderful book, Modernity Within Tradition, I recommend to everybody, if you're at all interested in Yakish stuff, <clears throat> if that's what interests you at all. Uh, <clears throat> and, you know, uh, Wilhelm Karl Rothschild, I think was the original president of the Austrian Gemeinde, you know, of the Shul. And the bottom line is, <clears throat> they were strongly opposed to Reform Judaism, strongly in favor of Hersheyanism, and, you know, and he was even more from that. He had to do with the Chavetz Chaim and things like that. But he was a Yekin, you know. Now, the Rothschilds all married. I, I, if I remember correctly, I don't think he shook hands with women or something like that, or maybe only with a glove. I mean, he took it seriously. <clears throat> now, um, I mean, he had pals and all that sort of thing. You know, he's mega wealthy. But he was like that. Now, um, he had several daughters. One of them married Edmund Rothschild. Our hero. So now his cousins. Right? I know it's not medically a good idea, but that's what they did. <clears throat> so that means the Paris Rothschild, who at least as I said before, by his own Teva, at least Judaism was on the top ten or twenty list of his interests. That you know, not far from the top, but nevertheless it's on the list. So this was magnified by the fact that the girl he married was um Strongly Jewish. And now, I have to watch what I say. Strongly Jewish, I mean, she's marrying a guy who's not a Shema Shabbos. Okay? 
she's marrying a guy that doesn't keep kosher. Not really. Let's not fool ourselves. Uh, so it must have been known. Now, here you're talking about mega money mag marrying mega money, and that sometimes trumps, uh, you know, religious uh, considerations. It's true. And I'm sure that's what happened over there. I mean, I would like to be there during their, you know, when they established their household, you know, how much uh, kosher do you have, how much this and that and the other. Uh, it's just interesting. It's not like Montefiore, whose wife turned him around. Like I said last week, Montefiore's wife actually made him a Shabbos Shabbos. Okay? She really did. Uh, that's not exactly what happened with them in Rothschild. But I'm sure there's no question in my mind that having a mother like that must have exercised a pro-Jewish influence in the house. I read once in a book, maybe with Simon Shamla, that uh, she had a kosher kitchen. After all, you got a palace. Uh, it makes these movie palaces look like nothing. If you're Rothschild, you have 10 palaces, 20. I'm serious. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. <clears throat> the 19th century was the time to be a zillionaire because it was the age of capitalism. They didn't give a damn for the for the workers. And the, those the rich lived the rightful Riley, Riley. And if you're a Rothschild, you left the top of the world of the rich. <laughs> so they went from place to place, and it was like that. <clears throat> now, she had kosher kitchens, you know, even had a yacht. And the yacht was a trafe kitchen and a kosher kitchen. So in other words, for him, trafe is enough. For her, she wants kosher. Uh, I know it sounds funny to us, but when you're rich, they think you really know, you know. Uh, I'm guessing, I'm guessing, the Friday night they had a kosher dinner. That That's, you know, I imagine something like that. On Pesach, Passover, probably had a kosher Seder. You know, that that kind of thing. That's what I surmise. Uh, <clears throat> but again, by the standards of the mega rich, that was unusual already. Uh, pretty unique. So as it goes, in the world of the indifferent, he was less indifferent. Um, uh, that's part of it. That's part of the reason. She must have had an Eretz bug in her if she's from it all. That's number one. And number two, uh, <clears throat> here's the part that really is cool. There's a wonderful article. I, I'm, I must have said this one time or another, but it doesn't matter. If I can't remember, then you probably can't. <clears throat> um, uh, Mitzitza Mepel was a big, um, issue in the 19th century in the original fights between the Orthodox and the Reform and the others. And for obvious reasons, Matsitsa Bepet is, is a, is a hot-button issue even today. De Blasio got elected by saying he's not going to enforce any prohibitions on Matsitsa Bepet for the Hasidim. And, uh, and, and, the, and the health regulations are against it. <clears throat> so all I can tell you is Matsitsa Bepet, where this most sucks of the Mila of the baby at the Briz, for some reason, when it came to the 19th century, became always a horrified. Not in the earlier centuries, but in the 19th century. Because that's when modern medicine really started. And it's also when uh, left-wing groups within Judaism really started. And the early reform movement, and I don't blame them, <clears throat> and Haskalah and all that sort of thing, already early in the 1800s, started saying that one of the changes you have to introduce in the Jewish life is not necessarily get rid of bris because that thing didn't have the chutzpah to say only extreme left-wing members of the movements, extreme left-wing, were against Brits Mila. Everybody else, it was still traditional enough. The circumcision is a basic part of Judaism, but not the Mitzitz of Bepet. At least let's change that. And precisely because, and the reason was because they said, you know, health reasons, which makes sense to us today, there were all kind of rumors, I'll, you'll never know if they're true. Because the newspapers, you know, as we know from Corona, rumors are flying. So there used to be rumors that babies died because the mole gave them a tzitzah, 
and the mole had gonorrhea or syphilis or this, that, and the other. <clears throat> I don't know if there's any truth. It's never actually been medically documented, as far as I'm aware, these stories in the 19th century. But that was the raid out there. And as a result, one of the big pushes was to abolish Mitzitsa Mepan. Okay? Uh, it became an old question, do you need Mitzitsa or not? And uh, there's a very fine article by Professor uh, Jacob Katz, passed away many years ago, 1990s, I got his book, Divine Law in Human Hands, I'm holding in front of me, Case Studies in Halachic Flexibility. It's a classic. And um, one of the things he deals with is the, what he calls, I mean, it's translated from the Hebrew, is uh, uh, what he calls uh, the controversy of Mitzitzah. So in other words, he has an article, The Controversy over Brismillah. I won't go into that now. You know, the, as you can imagine, there was a push against that by the extreme reform, or at least to say that a person should be um, officially a member of a Jewish community, a, a man, even if he's not circumcised. The, the old way was, if you never bris, you're not, you're not a, a member of good standing of the Jewish community for taxes and other things like that. But let's leave that aside. I'm talking about the Mesito. And so there was a push to abolish it or modify it. Now, I think, as many know, the pressure got bigger and bigger as the 1800s went by. The Orthodox dug their heels in, and they, as soon as the Reform said, it's not an Iker part of the Mila, because you can make such an argument. After all, the Mila and the Pri are the Iker parts. But the, but the counter-argument was, uh, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's an Iker part of the, of the Bris Mila, the Matisa. Uh, a lot of this has to do with politics and all the rest of it, but so what? That's that's one of the classic fights, Orthodox versus Reform in the 19th century. It's not the only one. It's one of them. And uh, <clears throat> especially for the Richie Rich. And that's why it's very famous, very controversial, that the Hassam Sofer gave a head to her, he wasn't happy about it, to use a tube of some kind for Vienna. That famous Stadtschul, Stadt Temple. I was there a couple years ago. Uh, I had a nice choir too, with my uh, you know tour group that I, I led, and uh, uh, so that was originally built in the early 1800s by the Rothschilds of Vienna and those types. It looks like an opera house because they thought that would be make it look respectable in the eyes of Vienna, and um, it was. Let's put it this way: it was a semi-conservative, semi-orthodox show, but because of Rothschild's influence in Vienna and a couple of others. They didn't cross the line to actually break halacha. They just took it as far as it'll go. So notice they didn't have a bim and bam sub, but you know, really, really need one. It's not a din, right? Um, I know the chasam sober that time starts to say it is, but it's not really. Um, but on the other hand, you know, uh, a gentile choir they went to. Uh, that was too much even for them. Uh, change the sitter and all that. Forget it. Uh, you see what I'm saying? They wanted to make it. Very, very modern, but on the other hand, not cross the Shulchan Ark exactly. Uh, not break the Shulchan Ark. So, because they had that hesitancy, people like that, Sam Silver, like, sort of cooperate with them because they want to keep them within the, in the fold. As I said before, people like Sam Silver, Sam Silver were uh, very smart cookies. Uh, I spoke about the Sam Silver already, I think, right? And, you know, you know, the small macabre, min, docha, whatever you call it. They don't want to push people too far to make a, a, a non-from community. And so the long and the short of it is that the Sam Sever had one of his Talmudim 
It's sort of like a, a, the official Av Basin in Vienna, even though he didn't really have anything to do with the lives of, you know, the, the members of Rothschilds and those guys. Uh, his name was Elazar Friedman. And, and the Chassam server gave him a heter to use some kind of metzitzah repair. I'm sorry, a metzitzah with a tube and uh, of some sort. I don't know exactly how they did it. Or maybe it was a cloth. I mean, I wasn't there. Uh, it's famous that this sock was not included in the Chassam Sofer Sefer. Charles and was Chassam Sofer, which was published posthumously because the kids were like ashamed of it and so forth. But the but the student, the Lozer Friedman, who was a Talmud Chacham of his own, when he published his Charles and was he included the letter <coughs> of the Chassam Sofer to him. Because uh, he wouldn't do nothing without getting a green light from the Chassam Sefer, which is exactly what you're supposed to do. All right, so I'm just telling you how how controversial it was. Uh, later in the 19th centuries, the Yekish seriously went to work on this in the Yekish, in the best Yekish style, which is to find a technical solution that totally fits the halachic parameters, <clears throat> but nevertheless conforms to a modern stuff. So, like the equivalent of the machine mops, I get it. And you remember I did a couple months ago, I don't remember how long, Dr. Michael Kahn from Fulda, Rabbi Dr. Kahn, who was a Yekesha, Yekesha rabbi, a student of Hildesheimer, and he, in close consultation with a very famous Geisha professor, a medical uh, the professor, they developed a, the, the modern tube that they use. Okay? And uh, so, in other words, it was 100% kosher, and that became very widespread. Now, what does it got to do with what we're talking about today? Listen closely. In If this was the atmosphere, <clears throat> I told you before that the Rothschilds in France, I'm talking about James Rothschild, was the most reform of all the brothers, although, you know, up to a, a certain degree. <clears throat> and um, and he drove the form crazy, but that's what it was. And one of the issues had to do with Mitsitsu. And in France, they had something called the Consistory, the Consistoire, that Napoleon had set up. And so this committee of laymen, they, they had the data. And already early in the 1840s, you know, they want to be progressive, and so in best French style, the consistory wanted to pass a law that no male can do mitzitza bepe. Right? The Orthodox protested, especially al Picabola. There are a lot of sodos and inyonim in mitzitza bepe. I'm serious. I have a book somewhere, many, many, many years ago, I got it, where a Siddish guy trying to make the case uh, for mitzitza on a whole bunch of grounds, and also the Kabbalistic stuff in there, right? And, you know, to, to dumb it down for you, it, it affects your neshama, right? I'm saying this for a reason. If you didn't see some repair in the traditional way, I don't know, somehow it affects your neshama in a Jewish way. Now, James Rothschild, this was a playboy. He didn't get married till later in life. I remember, he didn't get married till later in life. Um... Uh, and I think also he married a relative. And so, in 1843, he had a baby boy. The thing is, they had already passed a law that no one seems to be But his relatives are going to come because the family simcha, especially an old guy getting, relatively older guy getting married, having a son, a bris. I don't know, maybe that opinion about it, I don't know. It was a big deal. <laughs> he knew if it's frummy relatives from Frankfurt and all this, 
and even from London come, and they're going to do a bris without a mitzvah, mitzvah in the old traditional way, and they'll be horrified. He'll look like he's sold out. And so he had a family pressure, he felt, to do the bris strictly the old way. On the other hand, he himself was the president of the consistory that issued the law that you can't do mitzvah repair. Matter of fact, they made all the moils, if I remember, in France, because <clears throat> um, he had a lot of power. Come and swear publicly in a court that they wouldn't do mitzvah repair, and there was one moil named Rottenberg who later on tied that it didn't count because of Batora, and he did Matsitsa Repair anyway in Calais or something like that, and they wanted to arrest him. I mean, they were nuts, you know? And that's what it was. Uh, so, what do you do? So, if you, you know, when you have endless money, nothing is an object. And so, he knew that the relatives were going to come, and so he said it was like this For my kid, we're going to Matsitsa Repair. How are you going to do that? Right? I mean, you issued a law. It's like this. First of all, we'll bring a, a, a mile from London. So in other words, he didn't take an oath. You know, he's not governed by the laws, get it? They made all the French miles swear and all this. But you bring a guy from London. <laughs> That's number one. Number two, but you passed a, a Jewish law. You can't do this in France. Okay, he had the Brits in the Russian embassy. The Russian ambassador was a friend of his. I'm sure Rothschild paid him off. And what's the shot? The Russian embassy is not part of France. Get it? Legally, it's a piece of Russia. You know that. An embassy is, is a piece of foreign country. Uh, and so he had the Brits. Rothschild, the richest guy in France, had the Brits for his own son in the Russian embassy in Paris with a mile from London <laughs> with the receipt of a pet. Right? As a logical, modern guy, I don't know how he explained that, but this is part of the cognitive dissonance they said before. And remember, he was the first generation of Rothschild, so they had some kind of a guilty conscience. <clears throat> My friends, this baby was Edmund Rothschild. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And so, it's like a Kabbalistic business. I'm serious. I noticed this. Well, I'm telling you, I noticed this when I, got, when I first read this article ooh, at least 25 years ago. Maybe more. And as soon as I said, I said, ding, ding, ding. Nobody ever two shelled this. Uh, it's a strange, you know, nobody ever noticed this. Um, and of all the Rothschilds, he had some kind of a, a feel for Israel, even though as a Rothschild, he's going to be a, a, a control freak, a micromanager, simply because it's my money. I don't want anybody, you know, the millionaire. You see, let me put it this way. A guy with endless billions, he should have said like this. What the heck? I'll give another five million, ten million to Israel, to the Chovetzion, to the Zionists later on. I mean, what do I care? You know, as long as stuff happens, I should worry that this guy's stealing a little money over here and that guy's stealing money here. You know, it's going to happen <clears throat> when you give money to an institution. Don't the collectors take off the top, and then the other one takes off the top? It's, it's just how it goes. You know, very few institutions it's run a hundred percent. It's it's how it goes. But what am I going to say? I'll say this: I'm not going to give any tzedakah. Because I don't want any money to go to this and this guy, or do I say, listen, rove in the money. Hopefully, go to hopefully we'll go to the Talmudim, we'll go to the institution, we'll go up to help to pay the rabbis and this and that and the other. Some of it will disappear along the way. All right, you know, I'm just being realistic. Uh, otherwise, you know, what are you going to do? A guy come to you in the shul and he has to hit you up for a dollar. You're going to say like, oh, let me see this, that, and the other. It's a dollar, you know. <clears throat> he didn't have that attitude. 
He was a micromanager. It freaked him out that somebody may be stealing some of his money. I know it's crazy, but that's what it is. And so what he did was he ended up setting uh, up his own organization in the 1880s and afterwards. Uh, I forget offline what it was called, but it was a big deal in the old days. Rika, Pika, something like that. Pika, I think. Palestine Institution or something. And they're the ones, and he sent his officials over. I mean, he took French guys, Jewish guys, and he said, I want you to represent my interests in Palestine. And when these uh, settlers are going to come from Europe and elsewhere, uh, you're in charge of them. I mean, they have to listen to your orders. And you will teach them how to be agriculturalists. You'll teach them the French methods of organizing a town and <clears throat> sanitation and education and this and that and the other. You can imagine he tried to run it like a, like a, almost like a penal colony. And the Russian and Polish Jews who came didn't have nothing to do with it, but a lot of them were dependent on him for the money. <clears throat> My very good friend Sammy Finkel wrote a book, I think I mentioned about Maskered Batya, where, you know, in, in 1887 was a Shemitah year and, uh, you know, they said they can't work. And <clears throat> Rothschild said like this. It, this sounds like a shtick. They said it's in the Bible. He said, I know, but there must be a way around it. This sounds to me like a shtick. And they couldn't stand having a shtick. I mean, seriously, at the end of the day, a guy like him, how many settlers did you have in Palestine, 1887? A handful. Uh, it's chump change for him. He he didn't see. See, if it was, if it was Montefiore. Montefiore would say like this. I'll pay that they shouldn't work. Psst. Very nice. Classy. Right? You say classy. The farmer sat and did work for a whole year. Micaiah misses Shemitah. That was Montefiore would do that. You see? And people say, oh, Jewish pride. He said, Kiddush Hashem. Rothschild wasn't built that way. What he said it was, Edmund Rothschild. He said, listen, if it's really true, that there are no loopholes, I'll bite the bullet. You see I'm not going against the Torah. I'm not saying that the new Jewish settlement should tell Shemitah to drop dead. But I want to know, is this a chumrah? Is this that? You know what I mean? I want to know, do you really, really need this? <clears throat> and very famously and very controversially, Rebizik Khan Inspector said that they could do certain malachas. They could, could work certain things on the Shemitah year. Rebizik Khan got a lot of help from the other rabbis for this. Okay? Including from the Nitziv. Uh, no, it's even even from Chavay Um He no, we still call You don't need me to defend. You know, he he had his his view and he saw it his way. And Rothschild then said, "Oh, see, I went to the number one rabbi in Europe that the Orthodox all follow. You still inspector, and he gave a green light, at least a partial green light. And there were some who didn't in Palestine and didn't want to do it. And Rothschild cut off the money, and they starved. <clears throat> some of the babies died, and he wouldn't give them pharmaceuticals because when he Set of a community, he did it, you know, in, in, in his way, which is, you know, every community has a, he'll pay for a, a school and a pharmacy and a clinic and, uh, you know, uh, agricultural training. I don't know, all kind of European notions. And the guy, all I can tell you is you can always criticize, and he ran everything in an autocratic way, right? Because he said, I'm paying for it, uh, which is true. But I'm not in the mood today to criticize him because at the end of the day is he spent zillions on Israel. He got hooked on it in a way that he would never admit. And the best story, there's a book uh, from 1970s from the famous historian Simon Shama. He's a British historian. Uh, 
not long ago when the chief rabbi died, what's his name? Sachs. I was looking on the internet and I saw that some show in maybe 92nd Street Y had an interview, public occasion, Jonathan Sachs and Simon Shama, because they both went to Cambridge at the same time in the 1960s. But obviously Sachs went in a front direction and Simon Shama went in a different direction. But he's a pro, he's a Jewish Jew, he's a pro-Zionist and all that. So, you know, he's not one of those type of Jews. And back in the 1970s, I think one of his first jobs was to write, he was hired by the Rothschilds. They said, we don't know what we did in Israel. You look up the family records. And he wrote a book called Two Rothschilds in the Land of Israel. I still remember, I have it somewhere. It's a very good book if you're interested in this subject, which I am. And he went, Baruch Bichaktana, and all the enterprise that Rothschild got himself involved in. And I just want to give you one example to show the cognitive dissonance of the guy who kept saying, I hate this. You guys are ripping me off. He keeps writing a check. Right? And one of his ideas was, this is very French, you know, Rothschild, you know, Mouton Rothschild is the top uh, champagne. It's the best wine. Right? The best. It's not a champagne. It's the best wine. The Rothschild was big into the wine. Because once you become Frenchy, you want to be like a real Frenchy, and that's a, the super wine. So, um, he wanted to, uh, what shall I say? Well, let me put it this way. You're going to Israel. We're having settlements now. We're moving Jews in. What's a business that'll do well? And he said, I guess, let's do wine. After all, Palestine is a Mediterranean country. She have the right climate. They can grow wine, grow grapes, make a wine. He's a French, you know, he's French. Uh, the Jews said, I guess, nah, nah, nah. He said, no, we're going to do it. Now, it turned out it wasn't exactly the right soil. And Rishon Lezion, he said, we'll change the soil. He spent the veld changing the soil. Then it says, there's some problem with the, 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 the temperature. I'll build a giant refrigeration machine. I'm serious. In other words, he went obsessive on this. And then it was a bull wheel attack or something like that. And he paid to cover the, everything with netting. And so and such and such. And he brought in the top experts from France and Italy on viniculture. Those the top wine guys in the world. And, you know, who grow the grapes and all. They give you the top advice. Which is the type of grape to grow. And, you know, under what climate. And as I and as I, let's put it this way. Very not Jewish. Okay. Very Rothschild. And he said, we're going to grow a native uh, grape here. We're going to turn it into wine and so forth. And I think, you know, after he, see, he spent insane amounts of money, right? Because he could. Uh, and my point is, this is not economical. If, 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 if you have to pour in this kind of investment for this and that and the other, it's not something that, you know, that you can make money on. He didn't care. And finally, he produced a certain wine for Frenchy Frenchy, you know, fancy schmancy. To me, uh, you know, it's, it's not my area. It's a Kenny Freeman type thing. But, you know, now in the film community, for better or worse, we have fine schmeckers. And they, you know, are experts on the wine. So they don't know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> and he did a wine, if I remember correctly, it won the International Wine Prize in 1906 or something like that. Right? So it was a, a Palestinian Jewish grape from the Rothschild from the from the uh, and Sion. Boy, was he in seventh heaven. And he said it like this. He said, you all looked at me like I was a fool, like I was a visionary. I didn't know what I was doing. Ah, I now produce the best wine and won the prize. And now we're going to mass produce it and sell it to Eastern Europe. There's a market of millions and millions and millions. These Jews are used to junk wine on Friday night. And now we're going to introduce Israeli wine. And that will make money. You know, you thought I was a dummy. I was willing, however, I'm not a dummy, I'm a smarty. I was willing to spend the money to find the final product 
but then we will have a market. So between the Jews, we'll market in the Jewish communities, the from all over the world, between Eastern Europe and West Central Europe and America and all the rest of it, we'll make a big profit and it'll be a major moneymaker for the new Jewish tiny community in Israel. Of course, it fell totally flat. Our ancestors, my Bubby's Bubby and yours Bubby's Bubby, they go drink no super fancy French wine. They wanted, you know, Ken of Malaga, you know, Shapiro's wine, and that sort of thing. That's the Eastern European, you know, things that somebody would throw up at. Not me, but, you know, like I say, the Kennys out there. And so it fell flat. But it's a perfect example of he meant well. He just couldn't take himself out of his, his luxury way of thinking and, you know, his Rothschild way of thinking. And uh, let me put it this way. <clears throat> As a result of his efforts, lots and lots of little small Jewish communities were set up all over Palestine. You go there today, you can visit them. Uh, some were from, most not. Wherever he went, he built a synagogue. That doesn't mean people, people go there. After all, he didn't go, you know, except except when he did. I remember in 1914, he visited Palestine uh, on the yacht, and they all came on board to see a yacht that has a kosher kitchen and a trave kitchen. Because I told you, wherever he had, he had two, 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 uh, uh, two possibilities, you know, one for him and his wife. <laughs> He thought strategically. Um, he was a little bit of a weirdo, no question about that. You can't be that rich without being a weirdo. But he was a good Jew. He just didn't want to talk about it. His idea was like this, just shut up like a good businessman and just buy it up. See, he in, th at that time, Palestine belonged to Turkey. In the beginning, the Turks didn't care. You buy a little here, a little there. But after a while, he saw a pattern. to buying up all the land. Every time something opens up. And so the Turks passed a law that you have to be a Turkish citizen in order to buy land. No, so Rothschild just paid lawyers and they went to, to Istanbul and they worked it out in such a way that they had a front man and they bought it for the front man, but it's really belonging to Rothschild. And he said, I guess, what is a future Jewish state? Not today, not tomorrow, maybe in 100 years, 50 years, whatever. But one day, somebody should think like this, what's it going to look like? And he did a lot of the original land buying, which defines the borders of the state of Israel today, especially in the north. He bought Metula, for example, the land there. And, you know, you know I'm talking about the finger all the way to the top of Israel, and uh, uh, some of uh, Tel Chai, you know, all these other places up there. That's how the modern Yeshuv, you know, developed. And when in 1947, they're figuring what the borders are, the Jews were able to say, see, we have Jewish settlements up there as it should be part of Israel. Uh, from a demographic point of view, I don't know if that works, but that's how it went. So wherever, so let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. Suppose Rothschild had succeeded in buying land in uh, Lebanon. Uh, that might not be a good example, but, just, but I'm giving an example of in Lebanon. Then when they drew the borders later on after World War One and World War Two. That would have been part of a Jewish state eventually, eventually, eventually. You get what I'm saying? If he would have succeeded, and he had those plans, and he so he paid a whole staff of people to be in the Middle East and run around and look for land to buy. There was one point where he bought the where he was able to buy the Kotel. I kid you not. But the chief rabbi visitors finally said, "This if this gets out that you're buying the Kotel, there'll be a pogrom in Kamo because the Arabs won't stand for it." even though the individual guy might sell it to you. And so for that reason, he backed off. That was his way. Now, in the eight, he started this in the 1880s. 
In the 1890s came Seder Herzl. Seder Herzl said we should start a movement and it should be befairish and befarhesio, not like thieves in the night. Yeah, he's talking about Rothschild. You're going like a thief in the night. No, you should set up an official organization, declare boldly before the world we want a state of Israel, ask the world to help you, and so on and so forth. Rothschild kept saying like this, just shut up, you stupid idiot. Why do you have to say you want a Jewish state? Just shut up, leave it to me. Little by little we'll buy it. And we may let it happen. Uh, after all, unless you move people there, it's not going to happen. Herzl said, if you do it your way, you'll never be a state. Because you'll buy a little in here, a little in there, but the government will be by the Arabs, by somebody else, and, and they'll uh, 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 take it away. So in the long run, Herzl was right, but you needed both men. So the modern state of Israel is in a certain way a result of Herzl on the one hand and Rothschild on the other. And even though each one was constantly dissing the other one, and each one said the other one was going the wrong halach, the Kalah Yisrael in general benefited. Right? Now, all during this time, he was always saying, I'm being ripped off. He promised to do this. You know, Shmuel Mulver promised, I forget what, this would happen, this would happen with the, with the settlers, and it didn't happen. Uh, and what's his name? Uh, Rothschild was very angry at him. He said, you were, I thought you were a real rabbi. You're a schnar. You ripped me off. It's ridiculous. A millionaire like him should be blessing rabbi. Like, I, let's say Shmuel Mulver stole the money, which which is not what happened. And Rothschild knew that. Let's say, you know, they were more schlepperish than was planned. Big deal. You understand? I told you again, it's a chump change for him. But he wanted to vent. It's part of his nature. He wants to vent. You see? And he wrote all these bitter letters to Shmuel Mulliver. Many years ago, I led a group uh, because Sammy Finkel told me that they have a good thing in Muscari Bati, a nice museum with a movie, and they do, where they show the dark side of the Rothschild regime, where his officials tried to run everything, micromanage it, and drove the people crazy. <coughs> and, um, where Shmuel Mulliver is buried in Muscari Bati, yeah? they transfer, transferred his body uh, from Europe there. And I remember the girl who was the guy, she's a very good, nice girl. She, you know, like the Bayakiva type. And she, that was her Sherwood Lumi, you know. And, um, what do you call it? She said he's, he, he's buried, you know, in this uh, tomb. I'm, I'm a coin. I didn't go in, but you can see the tomb. And, uh, in a, you know, in an Aron. I mean, in, excuse me, in an Ohel. And they said like this. He, un, under his head, you no, know, they took the corpse and he put it flat. And under the head was a bunch of letters from Rothschild blasting him. Calling him a thief and a crook and so forth. He said, this is what get me to heaven. Because I took a lot of junk off this guy for the sake of Eretz Yisrael. You see? I took a lot of junk off this guy, but I was willing to do it for this. As long as it keeps this sake of Eretz Yisrael. Here, let me stop. Okay. Where was I? So, anyway, this continued from 1880s, 90s, early 1900s, down to the First World War. The First World War changed everything because when the war was over... The British and the French divided the Middle East, and the British took Palestine and Jordan. And then everything came extremely politicized. Then it wasn't a question of money anymore, it was a question of politics. Basically, the Jewish national movement versus the Palestinian national movement, to use the modern terminology. And uh, that required, indeed, a Zionist organization and so forth. Um, so the idea then of, of a Rothschild approach came less and less there. You know, I mean, his he still gave money, they still had their holdings, they bought land. But, you know, the Iker was the Sachnut, as you understand. Which, by the way, was um, recognized in international law. 
when they had the, what they called the Treaty of San Remo, they said that the Sochnut represents the Jewish people. That may not be true, but that doesn't matter. That was how the law was was promulgated. So the Rothschild approach became less and less. Uh, the guy was already in his 80s and 90s. He still kept up the same shtick, which is he wanted to be a micromanager of what he had. Um, he's always complaining about being ripped off, now by the Zionists, by the others. It drove him crazy, but he never stopped writing the checks. That's the point. <laughs> he never stopped writing the checks, which goes to show you, deep down, whatever he said about himself, he really had like a, a, a soft spot. It's a funny, you know, see that? And um, his communities, this is like, you know, Rishon Lezion and Zichon Yaakov and uh, Benjamin and so forth and so forth. They became the old Yeshuv, you understand? Uh, notice by the time the Chalutzim came there in the 20s and 30s, started the kibbutz, these places were already uh, operating. Now, I'm oversimplifying because I don't want to go into history as fascinating it is of Palestine during these years. That's a whole course by itself. I just want to touch on a few points over here. But to me, what makes Edmund Rothschild interesting is this uh, quirky personality he had, which is, he had this, there's no question that he had a strong passion feeling deep down for Judaism, which he didn't know how to express. He wasn't a from guy. How he worked as his relation with his wife, I have no idea. Um, and, he, you know, and Judaism was almost a certain déclassé, you know, like a low-class element. But he wasn't really like that, but he was. And so he couldn't, he couldn't in my mind, he couldn't admit to himself his passion and so he did it in this crazy way, which is to pour un, un, enormous amounts of money. You know, the Zionists never came up with the kind of money he, he'd come up with. And it's a shame that uh, this is just one of his hobbies. Because a guy like this, let's say he would have doubled and tripled it. It wouldn't have hurt him, believe me. You have no idea how wealthy these guys were. It would not have hurt him at all, okay? It wouldn't make a dent in his lifestyle at all if he tripled and quadrupled what he gave. And then this will be even bigger than this today. But such is the nature, like I said before, you have the Golsashkina, that we have to be grateful for what he did give. Because nobody else did. Not like that. You understand? And um, because it is, he gained a great uh, reputation in the Kali Yisrael. They call him Hanadiva Yadua, the famous uh, benefactor. Uh, he had this screwball relationship with Yiddishkeit. Otherwise, like I said before, he would have looked so classy you know, he didn't think like this. He would have looked so classy if he would have said like this. You know, say, Shemitah year, I'll bite it. I'll, I'll swallow it. I'll, I'll eat the whole, you know, let him not work, I'll pay for the whole thing. Do you know the Jewish people would have held him in such, you know, high regard? He he just, you know, couldn't see that. Because, you know, he, he, he that's not how he was built. So, you end up with a guy. That's why, to me, um, the Mitzitzah story, as weird as it sounds, I, 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 I've I been attracted to him. There's something, something weird in him. Uh, and indeed, as late as 1934, when he was dying, you know, he got another request for something in Israel. And, you know, he wrote him a check and he said, that's the last check I'm ever going to write you. Well, that was true. But for the last 50 years, because he died, for 50 years, every week, he always used to say, just the last check I'm ever writing. Just the last check. I hate you. You're ripping me off. You're a bunch of cheaters, a bunch of snores. A bunch of liars. I don't have nothing to do with you. But then he would write him another check. You see? He would write him another check. So the guy was strange. 
Sometimes we have Jews who have an attraction, what you call the pental unit, but they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to do it. You know, somebody like a Montefiore, for example, just becomes a from Jew. That's like, you might say, okay, you're, you're coming into contact with your inner self. But a lot of people have a pull and they do not know necessarily how to express it. And he's a classic example in my mind. There's no question he had a deep pull towards Jewish stuff. And I would even say in a Muna, but he could never admit it to himself, you see? And he could never, you know, ha have a healthy relationship with his most deeply felt feelings. And that is an interesting concept of Gaulus as you think of the figure of Edmund Rothschild during the nine days. Anyway, once again, I want to thank Morris and I pay my tribute again to Henry Wretches. That was a very fine person. And with that, I bid you all a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.